2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
2: Well, Santosh, I hope you had a happy Easter, Roman or Greek, whichever you don't <laughs> celebrate because you are a completely different religion.
1: Yeah, I, I really am. So I gotta ask because I don't know how the calendar passed this year. I, I do know that Eastern Orthodox versus Catholic and you know Western Easter does happen at different Sundays, I guess. So which one already passed? Because I know the current weekend, like as we are recording this, is the uh the I guess the Western.
2: Let's be honest. By the time this episode airs, listening audience, both Easters will have passed, and hopefully no other holidays. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we're trying to be prompt. We're trying to be good about being prompt.
2: But since Easter is a holiday that deals with resurrection, I thought it was time for us to uh, talk about a different kind of resurrection we're starting to see that's a lot less positive. And that, of course, is the return of COVID.
1: <laughs> and just like you said with the, uh, the 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 Easter's passing by and no other holidays – I sincerely hope that by the time this goes to air, we're not seeing any more horrible waves of COVID going through. Because I'm going to just go ahead and maybe jinx it, but we're in a relative period of calm right now, Josh, as we record.
2: Well, before it crawls back out of its cave, (laughs) I figured it was time for us to do another journal club. Uh, you know, everybody's favorite alternate week segment. Why did I not get super excited about this one? Because it's time for another pandemic update, Journal Club. Oh, Yay! Yeah. I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is time once again for us to do a roundup of what's new in the world of medicine, this time with an emphasis on... COVID news, because we haven't done one of those for a while, and I'm sure
1: you've all yeah, missed it. Yeah, there have been some interesting updates, like we're about to show, in treatment and prevention, and we're learning things very, very quickly, which is pretty damn cool. But yeah, I, I hate that we had to, that we had to learn so quickly, because otherwise we would all die. Yeah.
2: Well, let's start the first story, and this is released March 9th, 2022. And it's actually from your home location, Santosh, or at least the the press release is, Scientists Identify Possible New Treatment for COVID-19, something with a biologic substance, always a phrase that inspires confidence.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So this is from a massive lab at the Smith Heart Institute at Cedar sinai Oh, I'm smitten. This, you are smitten. You ought to be smitten.
0: <laughs>
2: so, so, so tell us, this study from the Journal of Biomaterials and Biosystems is about what?
1: Well... A, a while back actually and, and now for a long time the marban lab so dr eduardo marban and one of his co-investigators uh dr ibrahim they've been working on these little um extra vesicular vesicles that some cells sometimes shed and trying to see if when they migrate around if they're able to repair damaged cells so the the type of tissue damage that we get from acute COVID-19. So in this particular case, Josh, they got those uh, extracellular vesicles to be secreted by fibroblasts, um, which are just very generally like connective tissue type of cells. And this was all in vitro, meaning like in a Petri dish. But they basically engineered those fibroblasts to secrete these extracellular vesicles and then, you know, exposed those uh, kind of repairing cells to heart tissue, lung tissue, muscle tissue in a Petri dish and then also in mice.
2: They did, in fact, prevent the virus from reproducing itself in in the petri dish specifically in lung cells right and also and also interestingly helped to uh protect or repair tissue which is not something that we have seen some of the other ones most of the treatments have been focused just on let's stop the virus from replicating but whatever damage is done the body will sort itself out or you know what's done is done
1: and that's because you know, we target the virus, we're able to lower inflammation, but we really haven't had the type of, you know, repair mechanisms or biologics, the way that they're proposing that can actually go and patch up tissue, regrow new cells.
2: Now, the way that this is at least theorized to work, although since, again, this is your home facility, you probably know a lot more about the study going on, is sure. that this Aztex, uh process, cells treated mm-hmm. with this Aztecs process made less of the ACE protein that SARS uses to infect cells mm-hmm. compared to remdesivir, which did not inhibit the production of ACE. Instead, remdesivir, which is the treatment that is primarily used currently to treat those with severe COVID just stops the virus from latching onto the protein. So remdesivir stops it from connecting. Whereas this Aztec supposedly stops the protein or decreases the protein from being made or even providing that, that hook on point. But you said you're actually quite familiar with this study and it is being maybe a little overhyped.
1: Yes, that's true. In this particular case, I think that uh, the, it's it's a fantastic technology, and really, uh, the idea, the theory is brilliant. And the problem right now is when this press release went out and everything like that, I, I don't think it was really pushed as overhyped or anything like that. But, you know, that's what we're here for, for Journal Club, is that Uh, As stated, this was a very preliminary preclinical in vitro study and a mouse study. And the results are really, really promising in that type of environment. But so far, so far, we haven't been able to bring it to the point. I shouldn't say we, I should say the investigators have not been able to bring this to the point where we can introduce this into a human system, a living human system, and see if it works uh, as promised in, you know, a person who's actually had COVID and suffered lung damage or heart damage from. It. So that's the big question, and it's wonderful. There are, you know, National Institutes of Health funded these studies, and they're moving forward through UCLA and uh, the uh, the Smith Center at Cedars Sinai. So. I think the big takeaway as we've often done here Josh is take the study at its current stage and face value and don't go too crazy from there until we see the next step in evidence.
2: Now that we've kind of maybe had a a new avenue to pursue for treatment Let's talk about a different way to diagnose whether or not you have COVID. Because in the early days, Santosh, do you miss having something shoved up your nose? (laughs) I I know it brought me back to my early kindergarten days.
0: (laughs) To
1: be very fair, um, I haven't needed to be screened for a while or tested. Thankfully, uh, I I haven't been hit yet. And so, yes, I I guess I do kind of miss it. Um, Very unfairly for my kiddos – <laughs> There's still testing going on in school, right? Screening and testing going on. So they have not had time to miss it. They're still they're still getting it the old school, you know, not too far up the nose, thankfully. Before it was really far up the nose. Now it's the anterior nasopharynx and the sweeping and the fifteen seconds and the twirling and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Kick you yeah. It's, it's-
2: your doc. You can pick your nose, but you can't pick your doc's nose.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, Well, the good
2: news for your daughters is uh, they grow up so fast, of course. But now your daughters can get a taste of what it's like to be, I don't know, we'll say college age. And they can take a breathalyzer, but, you know, for COVID.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so hopefully if this breathalyzer comes back positive, they won't get pulled over.
2: And of course, I'm talking about the newly announced emergency use authorization the FDA sure. has released for the mm-hmm. very first breath diagnostic test for SARS-CoV-2, which makes it sound like another old-timey cartoon, which yeah. is the do-do-do-do-do, inspector COVID. do
1: Absolutely. Yeah yeah yeah. Uh, I of course that falls apart the little kitty cartoon part falls apart when you expand it out and saying a gr- gas chromatographic gas mass, mass spectrometry to detect volatile organic compounds associated with SARS-CoV-2. That I one said doot
2: to do to do, 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 do inspector <laughs> covid.
1: Uh, <laughs> I I apologize I'm sorry. <laughs> so
2: how yeah. does this gas chromatography work? Because I before you explain the methods, the authorization, you know, emergency youth authorizations are always a little bit difficult to understand, you know, what's if it's emergency, what's the rationale? So this was based on a study of over 2,400 2400 individuals, both Mm -hmm. with and without symptoms of COVID. And the test had 91.2% sensitivity. That is great. That means if you test somebody, 91% of the time, it will manage to detect uh, COVID. Now, Will that actually be a true positive, meaning they do have COVID? Or will it just say 90% of the time you'll get a positive result? Can you trust it? Well, even better, it's got 99.3% specificity, meaning if the test tells you you don't have COVID, you can trust that you don't have COVID. Yeah, And it has a
1: negative prediction. So Josh, specificity is really, you know, trying to say, You know, can you rule out a disease? You know, using this test, can you rule out this disease? What we care about for an individual, okay, is that negative predictive value where you actually, you know, you look at if you get that negative and you compare it to all other negatives that happened, you know, is that a what we call like a true negative? And that one, you know, 99.6, but always remember Uh, For all of you statistics heads out there, the specificity is the true measure of the actual test. The negative predictive value does depend and change based on the prevalence of the disease. So that one may go up and down based on, you know, how much COVID is actually circulating at the time. So it may be much, much more accurate in that sense if there's, you know... Very little or very, you know, a lot of COVID going on, you know, versus one or the other. I'm trying to remember which is which, but it it may change or flux. That being said, like 99.6 is insane. So it may be tougher to believe the positive with this test, if that makes sense. You you have like a little bit higher of a chance of getting a false positive. But if you're genuinely negative on this, if you get a negative on this test, you can be much, much reassured that, oh, that's that's a real negative. It's, it's out. Yeah. It's ruled out. So
2: essentially, if you get the breath test and it comes back positive, you need to confirm this with molecular testing. If you, Assuming you're not symptomatic. If you're Symptomatic, then you know it's kind of declared yourself. But sure. if the test is positive and you're just walking around feeling normal, then you should confirm yes, this is truly an actual case of COVID. Uh, whereas if you get the test and you're not really having any symptoms and it comes back negative, then you could say, hey, this is not due to COVID. Even if I'm having symptoms and the test the test says it's not COVID. This may be flu, it may be an upper respiratory virus, but it's not COVID. Mm -hmm. So you're considering it in the context of exposure, history, signs, and symptoms. But importantly, it's all done through little volatile compounds or special things released by this
1: I will tell you using mass spectrometry, okay, that's actually reading one way or the other. So gas chromatography in this case is the the detection method, but mass spectrometry as a whole is actually when you break down the size, you know, the actual mass of the particles and determine, yes, it's there or no, it's not there depending on you know, whether you find a molecule of that particular size in there. And given that, you know, a lot of these in in biology, like these amino acids and, you know, other volatile compounds, if you're able to find a unique signature and say, oh, this is very, very different from when I find the disease there versus when I don't, then it's terribly helpful and specific um, I personally have used mass spec um, for protein work to actually detect proteins, so I know how amazing and accurate this kind of, you know, the detection is. It's 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 really wonderful.
2: And let's see what's another one. Oh, you know, we haven't heard about ivermectin for a while.
1: And oh, uh, uh, do we need to though? Do we, well. Um,
2: yeah. Well, here's <laughs> let me give you the follow up. We actually, if you recall. We actually took the time to investigate where the whole ivermectin treating COVID rumor got started. I went back and I found that original study that uh-huh. looked at how it treated. And ultimately, that study determined that, you know, maybe, again, in a Petri dish, it might have some small effect, but ultimately was not any good at treating in a live person and certainly not at the doses that would be required. They'd be toxic.
1: However, that that was the major point right there, Josh, was that the reason that the uh, results from the in vitro testing, that the Petri dish testing didn't translate cleanly over to human studies was exactly what you said right there. When you got into the types of dosing that you needed in order for ivermectin to have that antiviral efficacy in your body, in a in a human body, you were hitting toxic toxic levels uh, to the point where, yeah, maybe you'd kill off the virus, but you'd really really hurt the human being too.
2: However, I figured let's get ahead of the curve before the next ridiculous non-treatment uh is released
1: sure that does nothing
2: the next one that you know i suspect will be added to the list of things that are heavily promoted by folks say like joe rogan who makes far too much money to ever care about what we say on this podcast
1: yeah yeah absolutely
2: is fluvoxamine uh -hmm. which I got to tell you before we go into the study, if you folks want to go out and start taking antidepressants to treat COVID, hey, I am all for it. Yay. Right? <laughs> let's let's go ahead and say maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that one's going to be hopefully less harmful. So so the University of Virginia uh-huh. is joining a nationwide study to evaluate among others ivermectin and fluvoxamine as medications for mild to moderate COVID nineteen, I don't know why we're still studying ivermectin, but <laughs> the health system of Virginia has decided it is worth still pursuing.
1: Sure, um, sure, sure.
2: Okay. So, Patrick well, Jackson, the principal and, and investigator for
1: <laughs> we we should start. We should start with they are looking at safe doses. Is that fair, Josh? So they're, they're not, yeah, they're not going for these insane doses that, you know, we were thinking about with other trials. Yeah.
2: So Patrick Jackson, the, the clinical researcher, does, is taking a, a reasonable approach to this. And he he says right in the article, Things that work in a Petri dish do not necessarily work in a human being. So it's important sure. to perform high-quality clinical trials to answer those questions. And they have specified ivermectin will not be available for treatment outside of the trial. So yeah, we're just going to stop talking. Key. So we're done with that. Now let's talk about fluvoxamine, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, often, described, often prescribed for depression. Mm-hmm. and well santosh what can you tell me about the trial it it's looking at multiple drugs and uh i feel like we were arguing about how many drugs are involved well, in the study <laughs>
1: well, well the ivermectin we talked about fluvoxamine as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant that's that's the second one and actually the third drug is going to be an inhaled corticosteroid so fluticasone the reason why they said oh more medications will be trialed and this kind of thing is because there are going to be multiple doses that are being trialed in those various ones so like Two different doses of the ivermectin or the fluvoxamine or the fluticasone. And those are each going to be steady arms. What happens a lot of the time here is you actually have to run the initial phases of the trial. You know, you, you maybe do one arm at a time and you look for what are called safety signals or efficacy signals. And those are very critical stop points, especially safety. If you see that at a lower dose, say of the fluticasone, that you're getting you know, excess morbidity, death, side effects, anything like that, you have to freeze before you move to the higher dose. So that's why when you look up the study, it'll say that, you know, up to seven drugs will be used. But it's really this particular phase of active ACTIV. So this is active phase six will be really only studying these three drugs.
2: Now, that's, that's what's bothering me. I mean, all of everything you described is wonderful. So I'm going to back up a little bit and and talk about these acronyms. ACTIVE is Uh Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. So the University of Virginia is joining as part of this large randomized phase three trial funded by the National Institute of Health to Mm -hmm. look at multiple existing drugs for repurposing. So the active six trial aims to provide treat evidence based treatment options for patients with COVID-19 who have mild to moderate symptoms, not sick enough to be hospitalized. So that's what we're looking for is out of hospital treatments. But yes. I like how they say we're going to you explore a pool of up to 7 drugs, but it's the active 6 protocol. Guys, come on. Yeah. Get your shit together. Is this the sixth time you're doing this? No, no, no. Or is it or or if you're trying or if you're trying 7 drugs, call it the active 7 protocol. How no, hard is no, no. this?
1: So, uh, active 6 because this is the Sixth kind of uh, trial under this big active umbrella, right? They were looking at lots and lots and lots of different types of therapeutics in the various it, kind of iterations of active, but this is the sixth iteration of active. Josh, I'll, I'll tell you that the other iterations, like active one, two, three, they did not contain the same number of drugs as the active number. <laughs>
2: So they contained inactive
1: numbers. No, stop it. (laughs) Yeah, there there were some phases that contained way more of the you know than the number, or (laughs) others that had less. So yeah, stop it.
2: (laughs) So you're telling me active seven could have six drugs because that would oh that'd be infuriating
1: or four or you know something like that. Like yeah yeah they don't they don't all line up like that.
2: (laughs) Well, they should. (laughs) But but. I'll grant them the naming was better. Um, However, because the drugs under consideration all have already been tested in humans, some of those at least efficacy trials, uh, well, safety and efficacy are already starting at a slightly different bar than if they were being developed originally. So the whole idea behind this active protocol is that repurposing the drug or giving it an off-label use could happen much sooner. Drugs are going to be administered either orally or by inhaler Mm -hmm. and are easy for people to take at home. And folks will be assigned randomly to receive either a placebo or one of the treatments, both of which will be sent to them by mail. Which already raises to me a couple problems because sending stuff by mail means you can't observe the person taking it. And when drugs are inhaled, you know, it's easy enough to take a pill drug correctly. But I can't even begin to tell you... How many folks, just even with the best of intentions, will incorrectly use inhalers if they're not familiar with them? Right. So um, I I'm wondering yeah. how how effective this will be and how large the trial is, and we can talk about that in a moment.
1: Yeah. Now, this is a kind of a trade off that you have to make when you're running a trial like this if you want good statistical power right you have to be able to enroll as many eligible people as you can right but that also means that you have to kind of reach far and wide you can't get everyone to come to like one center or two centers or whatever it is you know you you know you need to get up there in the thousands and thousands of patients in order to see hey is one kind of intervention better than the placebo. So in that case, yeah, absolutely, you've got to send that out. Josh, you're absolutely right. The inhalers, but at their very, very best, they deliver a bit, about 12% of the medications down into the lungs when you use it properly with a spacer or, you know, the tube that you're talking about in a mouthpiece. So I imagine that, you know, the number of people who will just kind of spray it into their mouth and it won't get in. But I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. There is a wonderful analysis that we call intention to treat, okay, where the we take into account that in the real world, so just like you would... Prescribe in the real world. If this, you know, X Y Z treatment worked, you'd send it out, but you you send it to the pharmacy, and the person is supposed to pick up their med and supposed to take it according to its instructions. But as a physician, like if you're treating, you know, you got 30 patients to see that day, you don't know if Joe Schmo took his medications (laughs) properly. So you want to actually run the study as if your kind of real world conditions including those kind of faults and missteps and stuff does that make sense it it, it's it makes messy. sense
2: even before i just i really wonder how reliable the inhaler portion of the trial is going to be yeah yeah
1: <laughs> well I, I i'll put it this way if we see that it has no advantage over placebo in terms of improving symptoms and all that kind of a thing, then we won't be terribly surprised, I don't think, in this case. If we do see a efficacy signal, if we say, hey, it actually does work really well, I would say then in that case, it would be very fair to request a follow-up study where we did more precise dosing observation, that kind of a thing, because I'm with you, I'm with you.
2: So enrollment for this study is actually expected to open in a couple weeks from the day we're recording this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. it's going uh, so to... In, um,
1: uh, late April, early May, that kind of thing.
2: And they are looking to enroll up to 13,000 participants who will have to be at least 30 years of age, have tested positive
1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss
2: for COVID, and have experienced two or more mild to moderate symptoms for no more than seven days. Researchers will be looking at their symptoms over a two-week period, looking to see who's hospitalized, who dies, who you know recovers without having to go to even so much as the doctor's office, separate from checking in for the trial. And they'll be looking at both the 14-day as well as a 30-day period. They're also going to try and assess long-term COVID. And by long-term, they mean looking at 90 days after treatment begins. Where We're still not going to know, truthfully, for years what long COVID, so to speak, is affecting for people. Uh, they also haven't fully picked all the drugs of the up to seven, we know that ivermectin's in it, we know fluvoxamine is in it, and we know that fluticasone, uh, trade name, Flonase, brand name? Brand name Flonase, brand is, name Flonase. Also, yes. is also being involved. So all the drugs have already established safety records from smaller or less controlled studies. Yeah. So they're looking at drugs that have already been studied in other things. Now they're going for bigger ones to see if they're actually effective
1: that's very fair and <laughs> i'm always cheering for things to work i i'd love to have more treatments for whatever it is if it's influenza or covid or you know you you pick a condition but i'm with you you know i know we we're going to you know get off of the ivermectin but i think it's fairly well put to bed this type of a large-scale study should really put the debate to rest, I think.
2: Now, a couple things I I really want to mention. The first is, if you're wondering, oh my gosh, this is great, you know, when will we find out about this? The good news is, shortly after the trial is completed, in two years.
1: <laughs> so... <laughs> well to, you know these things you know you gotta unroll it's gonna take time all this kind of stuff so unfortunately that's just the way the cookie crumbles josh the cookies two,
2: two years is actually pretty fast all for a scientific <laughs> study that's actually remarkably fast
1: <laughs> it's pretty quick yeah yeah
2: um but one thing i really really like and want to go out of my way to mention about this, is that this trial is actually going to focus on a population outside of the cities. It's focusing on enrolling people within minority communities, within rural communities, within communities that are affected by COVID, but don't have access to major academic medical centers and hospitals where large trials usually take
1: place. Absolutely huge. Just, just massive. And it's... This is the problem that we have often working in large academic centers is that very often, out of convenience or whatever it is, that large academic center is going to be in a big city. And when you want to recruit and bring people in, you're going to find people who are physically there. And until very recently, you know, even with all the electronic kind of means and everything that we had, we didn't have that ability to capture those folks unless you actually took the effort Josh to maybe get in a car <laughs> or <laughs> to travel out there and find these folks like this uh i will say now active 6 is open if people want to sign up you just really just go to the website they have a survey that you can take wherever you are and just like you said because they're sending the medications out there's a very good opportunity for anyone who wants to participate and, you know, passes all of those criteria that you talked about, get screened, approved, and, you know, actually help out the science and, and, you know, help figure this kind of thing out.
2: So we'll throw a link to where you can apply to enroll in the show notes. And, you know, At that point, it's up to you. If you fall into one of these rural, minority, or outside of academic center communities, it's worth at least looking into. And hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you already have all the tools you need to find out how to get involved.
1: Yeah. And for those of you guys who don't like opening show notes, active6study.org. A-C-T-I-V-6, the number, study.org. That's
2: right. Not seven, not five.
1: <laughs> the one in the middle, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, now, n- let's see. So far, we've covered new medications, new methods of approaching. How about a different kind of vaccine, but not a vaccine designed for everyone? And before you start giving me all your <laughs> will, why not designed for everyone?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, we, I hear you. I hear you already. <laughs> I, I feel the anger <laughs> and the rage.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, I am in a fairly unique position where I can say, as a for instance, as a for instance, right now in the United States, we have no good approved vaccines for children under the age of five years. Okay, so obviously not for everyone, right? In in terms of that safety signal, the efficacy signal, wonderful mRNA vaccines, BioNTech, Pfizer, and as soon as you try to administer them, and we tested, you know, we were looking forward to seeing the vaccine and how it performed under the age of five, but yeah, it's it, you know, we we had an efficacy signal, we had a safety signal, and we say let's pause you know let's let's move. so obviously we do not have the universal panacea type vaccine out there
2: and even and, if we yeah. did half the people are not interested in taking it so we're not talking what? about this i'm i'm telling it's you it's not
1: half we're doing good no, no 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 we're reaching like 60s and 70s percent in some in a lot of places so keep it up people don't be pessimistic dr josh keep your head up
2: <laughs> but the big complaint among both those who have taken the vaccine, as well as those who have to be generous thus far declined, yes. is there every week, it seems like a brand new booster is being recommended. And we're up to, I think, possibly fourth boosters. So yeah. we're always <laughs> saying we have to protect the immunocompromised. Well, right. this next study is interestingly about a vaccine designed specifically for the immunocompromised, although not all of them. This one is looking at a new vaccine that may be helpful and designed to protect patients with B cell deficiencies, meaning a specific kind of immune system deficiency. So to be completely cliff notes, bare bones version of your immune (laughs) system. Yes. You've got a couple different kinds of unique immune cells. B-cells are what's called your humoral immunity. After all, laughter's the best medicine. That's how you can remember it. Humorous. Uh, not yeah. true. Not true, but good mnemonic. So I'll,
1: I'll, I'll put one more mnemonic on there that will be helpful for all of the history geeks out there, Josh. So when we say humors, we think of fluids, right? So this is the antibody system that's suspended in the fluids, just like the ancient Greek humors. That's where the term comes from.
2: Well, oh, see, I was saying this is protecting patients with B-cell deficiencies. B-cells right. are the cells that help you produce antibodies.
1: Right, there you go. <laughs> exactly they remember,
2: right. yes. B-cells remember what infections you've had in the past and keep mm-hmm. a little diary so when an infection that your body has seen before shows up, the B-cells have the blueprints to make antibodies And start treating it for previously infected ones. So, COVAC 1, a vaccine induced a response, a T cell response. Now, T cells are your natural killer cells. They don't care what you've had, what you haven't. They're just given their orders and they go out and start hunting and killing the kinds of cells that your body has determined infectious. So this new vaccine, COVAC-1, could induce this T cell or killer response in patients who do not have B cells, who cannot have that cell memory. They have, think of it as immune amnesia. (laughs) And this, this affects specifically folks who have lymphoma and leukemia, which are two kinds of blood cancers, very, very common in both children and the elderly. Boy, that took a long time to get around to.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, you know, B cells going around, they have a little blueprint. Hey, I've seen that antigen before. Here's the recipe for the antibodies. I make them. Okay. And make a ton of them. That's why the second time or the subsequent time you see a new infection, or I shouldn't say new infection, the same infection that you've seen before, you get either reduced symptoms or less symptoms a lot of the time, right? But there is that whole other arm of what we call cellular immunity. These are T cells and Uh, they, they, these are Josh, um, we talk about HIV before those CD4 cells are the ones that HIV affects, right? They actually do, they're called, you're going to love this, Josh. They're helper cells. They're your little helpers. So so they, they help all of the other cells figure out what's wrong. Those CD8 cells are those killers. They break open cells, destroy viruses, ah, that kind of thing. And if you don't have those antibodies to help you out, these are the ones that are remaining to help, you know, keep viral infections down and fungal infections down. And they can, Josh, have their own type of little memory and actively destroy viruses when they see them. So far, we've been relying on antibody titers from our mRNA vaccines when you get your vaccine? Do you have the antibody against that spike protein? Okay, if you're making them more than likely, you're well protected. But hey, if you can't make antibodies, right, you need something to really stimulate those T cells to get them to wake up and say, hey, you got to make up for it. You got to you gotta make up for it. Your buddies are missing.
2: Now, traditionally, the spike protein has been what a lot of the vaccines kind of look at because it's it's the key that COVID uses to get into the door into the cells in your body and infect them. But this, this vaccine COVAC is a peptide based immunotherapy that's directed at different viral components. So it's not limited to just the spike protein. And therefore, and therefore, its effectiveness should not be, well, affected by any of the current variants of concern, including Omicron, DeltaCron, whatever we're up to by now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right now, Josh, as we record this, it is the Omicron subvariant B2. The
2: Wap Baba wap bab bamboomicron. <laughs> you know, the point yeah. being, regardless of what variant, this T cell response should exceed spike specific T cell responses.
1: Sweet. And yeah. And who knows? We Right now, this is really for those people who can't make antibodies, who have poor B-cell response, but it would be really wonderful if it was efficacious enough where it would even be useful for the general public who don't have this kind of immune compromise.
2: So the first phase of this trial included just 14 patients with a B-cell deficiency, on average, age 40 to 80. Uh, Mm -hmm. with leukemia or lymphoma, including nine of them who previously had a vaccine that did not elicit the humeral, the B cell immune response.
1: Right. So when you check their antibody titers, they're super low.
2: Then the next portion included an additional 40 patients, on average 60 years, 32 of who, so half of them had received, well, sorry, An additional 40 patients, 32 of whom had received an approved vaccine, but again, did not develop an antibody response. So they gave them just a single dose of COVAC and monitored them for up to six months. And it showed that they did actually induce T cell responses in over half about 62% of patients two weeks after vaccination. And after a month, 86% of them were showing T cell immune responses.
1: Awesome. That's so fantastic. I'm really, really happy about this. One, it's it's kind of old school vaccine technique, you know, Josh. So you, mRNA was kind of the hot new thing in town. But this is old school, introducing peptides, protein, short protein. Uh, sequences to see if you can piss off the immune system to attack it, right? And so this is very old school, and to see this kind of efficacy is fantastic. I'm crossing my fingers again, real tight, that it passes muster in the early studies, so that you know we can move through with phase three and uh, and and see if it can be. You know, implemented because, you know, I'm sure you work with, you know, cancer population, transplant population. We need this bad.
2: This is a vaccine that, for the vast majority of our listening audience, presumably not designed for you. However, for those of you at home who may have these kinds of immunities, there are treatments being designed specifically with you in mind. Bespoke. Vaccination, as it were
1: <laughs> I'm so happy for it, yeah, now, ladies and gentlemen, in the research community, if we could please think of the children, mm. won't someone think of the children' won't someone think of the children <laughs> It would be so nice to get good protection. I know that we don't have a lot of horrible cases with our little kids as compared to all of the adults, but it would be so nice to protect our kids under five people. mm, Yes. Okay. Let's
2: move on to our last study, which I found fascinating, concerning, international, all, all sorts of things. So let's see, we've covered vaccination. We've covered active trials for repurposing drugs. Let's go abroad. And meanwhile, in India,
1: <laughs> yes, across the across a couple of ponds, a few ponds
2: for moderate COVID-19 pneumonia so folks who may need to be hospitalized but short term mm-hmm. uh can't quite manage their symptoms at home. The a new study has been instituted to try a uh, an interesting treatment which is
1: <laughs> yeah. which yep, is yep.
2: radiation whole lung low dose radiation or pulmonary radiotherapy to stop the progression of disease in those who are suffering from hypoxia or low oxygen. The study is called AIMS, which is for all India Institute of Medical Sciences.
1: Yep. And uh, Josh, AIMS is just like it says, there are multiple AIMS centers in various cities around the country.
2: All India, in fact. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this one is specifically Ames in the in Patna, P A T N A.
2: So a whole lung low dose radiation of 0.7 grays, which is the measurement, unit of measurement we use for that was found to improve the general oxygenation level of patients at day three. This is from Dr. Preetanjali Singh, the principal investigator and head of the radiation oncology department. Well, I'm glad that a radiologist involved in in giving people (laughs) radiation. yes.
1: there there's certainly in this particular instance you should probably have a pulmonologist involved and a uh, physician scientist who understands and knows radiation absolutely
2: so i've got a, a couple small bits about this study but santosh i don't know if you were able to find a a larger version of the paper uh they looked at 13 patients Of those studied, seven were given the radiation arm and six were not. They underwent, you know, some kind of placebo treatment. Those who were given radiation therapy showed reduced need for external oxygen and the oxygenation level improved faster. Now, what we do in America currently is give folks high dose steroids, solumedrol, when they are... Dependent on oxygen. And when I say dependent on oxygen, the average amount of oxygen required by COVID patients that I've seen just personally tends to range on the lower moderate end from about four or five liters all the way up to 50 to 60 when it starts getting severe on average, the folks I'm taking care of who are not in the ICU are using between 5 to 12 liters of oxygen, which is still quite a lot. Uh, And they are saying that where we would be giving high-dose steroids, breathing treatments, and remdesivir, beginning from day three, these folks in this study would just be getting low-dose radiation.
1: Now, I should say, Josh... Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the results of this trial published, but we do have a history of trying this out. So, just going back, uh, you know, out to, uh, you know, August of 2021 actually, all the way over in Switzerland. Doctors there led by Dr. Martin Sigmund <laughs> in the University Hospital Basel in Basel, Switzerland, attempted this as well. They were using one gray whole lung radiation or Josh, this is a fun one. They used sham irradiation as the placebo. (laughs) So basically putting people in front of the machine and, you know, like you can kind of imagine someone going like, like in a microphone. (laughs) So they did a sham irradiation. Now, this one they followed out to fifteen days twenty two patients that were randomized, and unfortunately, this one failed to show any kind of improved clinical outcomes uh, as compared to folks who had uh, placebo or the or the sham radiation. This one was specifically used for people who are on a ventilator and trying to get off of a ventilator. so I don't know if this particular study that we're outlining now, the one in India, um, is going to be for uh, folks who are, I guess, out walking around, much less severe disease.
2: But I know everybody at home is desperately wondering, what what's a gray? How much radiation is that? Like, how many yeah. bananas is that?
1: How many bananas? That's the important one. Yeah, exactly. Right,
2: the, ba- <laughs> the banana equivalent dose. Well, for those of you who don't measure radiation in bananas, and if you don't, you <laughs> should. It's a lot you of fun.
1: Absolutely. Have- yes.
2: But on average, Americans receive a radiation dose of about 0.62 each year. And they're using 0.7 grays or uh, REMS. So it looks like they're giving kind of what we get in about a year from just going about our daily lives, being scanned, going through the airport eating bananas, cosmic rays.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Maybe a couple x-rays, like a dental x-ray.
1: Directed, of course, at the lung rather than in your mouth.
2: For those of you wondering about the bananas, the banana equivalent dose, because I just love this fact. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, one of my no, favorite no. Banana, to talk about.
1: Banana equivalent dose is a long-standing and much honored way of measuring radiation.
2: Bananas contain naturally occurring radioactive isotopes, uh, such as potassium forty, it's very harmless. You can you would have to eat a lot of bananas to start <laughs> worrying about any kind of real radiation. And in practice, this is not a cumulative dose as you excrete it. So it's just it's an educational exercise, which is part of what makes it so much fun. So the radiation exposure from eating a banana is about one percent of the average daily exposure to radiation, which is a hundred banana equivalent doses the maximum permitted radiation leakage for a nuclear power plant is 2,500 banana equivalent doses per year. (laughs) While a a CT scan of the chest is 70,000 banana equivalent doses.
1: (laughs) But all at once.
2: If you've gotten a chest CT, you're getting 70,000 bananas worth of radiation. So so these folks in India are not are getting, you know, maybe a bunch of bananas worth of radiation in a day. It's not a lot. One of our listeners, you go ahead and do the math. If there's any radiology or or mathematician or listeners, (laughs) how many bananas Um, is 0.7 grays? There's there's some enterprising med student out there, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) It makes me so happy to measure radiation in bananas. Oh my gosh, yeah.
2: It's bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Yeah, stop it. No. Another reference to this study from the Hindustan Times. Let's see if they've got a link to the original article. Uh, now, this this was done specific to the Delta variant of COVID. Oh, here we go. It was published in Frontiers of Oncology on March 29th.
1: Wonderful. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So this is kind of a follow-up to some of the other studies that have been done out there less severe cases right josh people who are outpatient i believe before where you know we it was being tested again low dose radiation on people who were very ill this is to see if you can prevent worsening keep people out of the hospital you know reverse people who are getting mild disease now the objection may be there honestly josh that uh If you have mild disease or moderate disease okay, and you're outpatient, should you be trying something like radiation in order to try this? It's a very fair objection. I think in these kind of small-scale studies, it's good to at least test the theory, make sure that there's no scary safety signal, and from there we can decide whether it requires further investigation.
2: And and this was brought up by one of the professors of radiation oncology, Dr. DN Sharma, who mentioned that what he did the very first one of these kinds of studies, and he's he said, you know, it was a small sample size, so we don't know how effective this is, expanded to the population. He also mentioned vaccines had not been developed. At the time that it was first studied, you know, he's not involved with the current AIMS study, but he did not recommend routine use of radiation therapy in people who only have a moderate risk because he said whether or not it's effective, there's going to be a lot of fear from the public that that dose of radiation, even though it's low, could cause or increase the risk of cancer over long term, say 20 years. So he specified radiation therapy will be helpful in three scenarios. First, When someone has developed severe COVID-19 infection, despite vaccination, monoclonal antibody, or other treatments. Mm -hmm. Second, when those other treatments have been given and failed. And third, against a new or more deadly strain of virus for which there is no vaccine available. The lucky noted that the advantage is that radiation therapy will work against all strains of virus, even those which have been mutating fast as it is not possible nor practical to develop a vaccine for a different strain of the virus every year. Now, I would argue with that last one. Yeah, but
1: <laughs> we're we're actually, you know, we haven't done any new kind of mutations on our mRNAs and DNAs and that kind of a thing for, for those deliveries. We haven't put those out there yet. But we should be agile enough to genuinely. And the efficacy of the original mRNA and DNA viruses in order to stop things like hospitalization and severe infection, still pretty good.
2: That that catches us up on what's new in the world of COVID. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Hey. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask. If you're going to be going places where there is a lot mm-hmm. of exposure, get your shot, take all the proper hygiene and health precautions. And when you've done all that, find a country that's still open, plan something fun, go explore something medically themed. And until next time, as always, Happy travels.
1: Bye, everybody.